0: if we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg, one of the pastors. And as we move into the message this morning, I'm wondering, have you ever been deceived? Right, there's deceit seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? Many of you probably are aware that recently my wife Abby and I had the opportunity to go on vacation to celebrate our anniversary. And one of the places we had the chance to visit was the Colosseum in Rome. And we had done a a lot of research before this trip, and one of the things we kept seeing come up over and over again was, particularly at the Colosseum, there would be all sorts of people trying to deceive tourists. Like they would hand you a bouquet of flowers out of nowhere as if it's a gift and then try to coerce you to pay for them. And so we are approaching the Colosseum, we're on the last street and it's like taking up most of our view because it's enormous and up ahead I notice this guy coming towards us and he tries to strike up a conversation with the group of people in front of us and they just totally shut him down and I'm like how rude and so as he comes to us, I do as I usually do, I said hello, and he lights up and says hello back, and he gives me a fist bump, and he says, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from New Jersey in America, and he's super excited, and I realize very quickly that Abby didn't stop, and she has now left me. And so I start to turn and try to walk away, and he's like, hey, hold on a second, and you've been so cool, and so he takes off this bracelet thing from his wrist, and he goes to hand it to me, and I just naturally, instinctively reach out, and then right I'm about to grab it, I remember my training, don't take it. And I'm sure it was super awkward because I put my hand out and then I'm like pulling it back and I'm like, no thanks. And I, so I start walking away and he's insisting and he's starting to follow after me. And I'm like, no thanks. And I pick up my pace to the point, and then he just, he throws it toward me. And I, it takes everything in me just to let it fall to the ground. And I say, no thanks. And I turn and I walk quickly and catch up with Abby, who is helpful to remind me to not even talk to these folks who are trying to deceive. Well, a little bit later we check in with our tour group and They say, okay, we're just waiting for everybody to gather, so go wait over by that wall, and so we're standing over here, we're talking, and this guy walks over, and he starts to hand me this thing, and it looks a lot like this microphone pack, and he's like trying to put it in my hands, and I'm like, no, and i you know, ignoring him like I'm supposed to, and he insists, and I'm like, no, and I get even more firm, and then this guy comes running over from the tour group, and he says, no, no, he's with us. That's your headset so that you'll actually hear the tour guide. (laughs) And I'm like, I... I can't win, right? <laughs> this is the problem with deceit, right? We don't know when we're being deceived. And it's certainly a problem that there's deceit in the world, but the real problem, I think, is when there is deceit within us. And that's we're going to look at that today as we continue our sermon series that we've called Just Like Us. We've been in this for a number of weeks now. And in this series, we're looking at the life of each of the 12 apostles, These are the 12 guys that Jesus invited out of all of the crowds to come and be with him uniquely. And he sent them out with authority and with the message of hope that ultimately would change the world. A message that we're the inheritors of and are called to also share. And so today we're going to look at the story of Nathaniel. He's also known as Bartholomew. One is his Greek name, the other is a Hebrew name. That's, it, that's why some of the lists, if you try to match up the lists of the apostles, they don't always line up because one's using Greek, one's using Hebrew. But this, today we're going to look at Nathaniel, the one in whom Jesus says there is no deceit. And so we're going to read from John chapter 1. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. But let's listen for God's word speaking to us this morning. The next day... He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we add the blessing, your blessing, to the reading, the hearing, the proclamation of your word. May you take it and use it to shape us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, this is the same passage we heard last week. Because last week, we were talking about Philip. And this week, we're going to talk about Nathanael. And this is really the only passage in the Bible where there's any substance about Nathanael. And so Philip went, as we're told, and found Nathanael. And he announces to Nathanael, we found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. Now, it's interesting if we pause right there to consider that this is what Philip appeals to when he comes to Nathanael. Like, he thinks this is what's going to convince Nathanael to come with him, to change something about his life, that he's found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Right? He didn't appeal to so many other things that he could have. He didn't appeal to Nathanael saying, hey, this guy comes with power and authority, like he's the next big thing. Everybody's following him and we could get in on the ground floor. He doesn't try to say, hey, he's the one who can really bless you. He can heal you. He's the one who could reward you or hire you or even he he could just make your life a little bit better. And yet those are the self-interested things we often appeal to. But instead, Philip appeals to the word of God because he thinks that's what is going to convince Nathaniel to come with him. And really that tells us a lot about Nathaniel. What it tells us is that God's word is ultimately what's shaping his heart, right? Nathaniel's hopes and his longings, his desires, his expectations are all wrapped up in his anticipation of the one that God promises is going to come to fulfill his hopes. And I think for us this morning, it invites us really to think about what shapes your hopes and expectations, what is it that's shaping your dreams and your longings, the trajectory of your life? I mean, is it the American dream? Is it, is it the family expectations that you grew up with of this is the way life is supposed to progress? Is it other people's experiences, things that they have that you look at and go, man, that's what I want? What's shaping your hopes and your expectations? See, Nathaniel is being shaped deeply by the Word of God. And when Philip shows up, he's inviting Nathanael to see the fulfillment of that word. And even more so, Nathaniel's being invited to step into the story that God's been writing throughout history that Nathaniel was familiar with and that he was writing right there as Jesus steps onto the pages of history. And if Nathaniel's longings had been shaped by something else, by his personal ambitions, by some other dream, he might have missed it altogether. Now, he doesn't exactly respond positively to the initial invitation, does he? I mean, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? See, it helps to understand that Nathaniel is from Cana, which is like just down the road from Nazareth, and apparently there's some sort of civic rivalry between the two towns. I mean, he knew that Nazareth Nazareth was a lesser place filled with lesser people. You know, kind of like, can anything good come out of New York if you're from Philadelphia? Or can anything good come out of Philadelphia if you're from New York, right? It's that kind of rivalry. And Nathaniel has this gut reaction, but even with that reaction, he's invited to come and see Jesus, and he does. He goes. He goes. And the thing is, if Nathaniel had just stuck with what he knew, if he had just decided, you know what, there's nothing good that comes out of Nazareth anyway, so this guy must be a fraud, I'm not going, he would have missed out on everything that Jesus was going to show him and do. And the same is so true for us. Our preconceived notions can absolutely cause us to miss out as well. If we think we already know what's supposed to happen, if we think we already know what God is going to do, how life is supposed to go, how it's going to work, we're going to miss out on what God wants to do because he will frequently defy our expectations. It's like if I already know how to solve a math problem, I'm not really very interested in you telling me a new strategy to solve it. If I already know that people don't find me funny or interesting, I'm not probably very interested in stretching myself to try to make new friends, right? If I already know what love is, I could miss out altogether. If I already know that love is really about unconditional, gracious acceptance, then I'm not going to be particularly interested in being corrected or rebuked. And others might say, well, yeah, right. Because love isn't about gracious, unconditional acceptance. It's about the truth. Especially if it's hard because the truth is what's going to set us free. That's what love looks like. And if that's what we know about love, then we might find it very difficult to love all sorts of people who are difficult to love. Right? If, if we come to God knowing what love is, we're going to miss the fact that God wants to show us what love really is. That God is love. See, that's not the same as love is God or our idea of love is God. No, the person of God is love. That's what's going to define what love is. It's his idea. Because this is how we know what love is, the scripture says. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And why did he lay down his life for us? Because we are sinners that are deserving of death, but he didn't want us to have to bear what we could not bear on our own, and so Jesus stepped into our place on that cross. That's how we know what love is, and it really blows away all our little understanding, little visions of what love is. So if we come thinking we already know what love is about, we're going to miss it. If we come already knowing that God wants us to be happy and will forgive us, then, man, this could create all sorts of problems. It did in the early church, right? That people were discovering that God was forgiving in Jesus Christ and that everything would be forgiven. And so people figured, well, then why not just live however we want to live? Do whatever makes us feel happy when we want, where we want, how we want, because God's going to forgive us anyway. If that's what we know, and we're only going to hold on to that, then we're going to miss out on the fact that we're made for holiness. And when I say holiness, not to like, not the way we often think about holiness, like where we're better than other people. No, holiness simply means we're made to be like God, Our lives will shine most brightly and most beautifully when our lives reflect the character and the person and the purposes of God in the world. But man, we're going to miss it if we think we know how life works. So Nathaniel is willing to hold his preconceived notions and gut reactions long enough to go and see Jesus for himself and when he does, he encounters Jesus and Jesus changes everything. Now maybe he was willing to go, <clears throat> excuse me. Because his preconceived notions were not just built on prejudices against Nazareth, but because there was really just an honest question that he was trying to understand. Because he knew, perhaps, that Moses and the prophets don't ever mention Nazareth. It's not in the Old Testament. So maybe he's trying to wrap his head around, how can it? How can the one that God promises come from there? He's trying to make sense of this news with an honest question. And I think we often have questions, things that we don't understand. Why does God let this happen? Or some sort of theological conundrum that that we can't wrap our heads fully around and that defy our expectations. And sometimes we bring those honestly like Nathaniel, and I think other times we allow these questions to become like this wall, this barrier that we hide behind to maintain the status quo. In other words, we can use our own questions to deceive ourselves. Charles Spurgeon was an incredible preacher in the 1800s and he actually preached a sermon in 1885 on nathaniel and he picked up on this idea he said this he says around us are a number of persons who object to our lord but the objections which they mention are not their real objections their pretended difficulties are a rod herring to turn the scent from their real reasons for opposition many oppose christ because they do not want to give up their sin they pick up some technical questions, some difficulty raised by geology or evolution or something or other, and they make a fuss and a dust over it, while the real impediment is that they are living an unclean life and do not want to give up their evil ways. Or we can hide behind our questions those things that we don't understand really as a way to keep God at an arm's length, right? Because when God gets up close and personal in our lives, he tends to meddle. I don't know if you've had that experience where God has meddled in your life, but I've had that experience. Where he meddles, he starts to show us things that really need to change. And he meddles because he cares for us and he he cares that our lives will shine most brightly and beautifully when we're holy and he won't settle for anything less, though we are often willing to settle for much less. And so we can use our questions to deceive ourselves and use them really to set up a barrier between us and God. But when Jesus sees Nathanael, when he finally approaches, he looks at Nathanael and says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. There is no deceit. What we see is that Nathanael's opposition to Nazareth is not trying to hide. It's a genuine question. He's trying to understand And we see he's willing to give up his preconceived notions of where the Messiah should and shouldn't come from when he encounters Jesus. The town is no longer important when he comes face to face with his Savior, with the rabbi, with the Son of God, the King of Israel, and he responds to Jesus' work in his life. See, Nathaniel is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no cunning, no treachery. What an amazing affirmation. Wouldn't that be amazing to have Jesus say that about you? And I think Nathaniel's kind of surprised by it himself. He says, how how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. I saw you. Before you saw me, I knew you before you knew me. Whatever it is that you're walking through in life, just as a quick aside, know that God sees you. Nobody else may see you. Nobody else may know you. Nobody else may understand you, but God sees you and he knows you. And he's inviting you to know him. And Jesus looked and he knew Nathanael. He saw right to the core of his being. And in Nathanael, he saw one in whom there is no deceit. What does he see in you? See, there's no deceit in Nathanael, even when it comes to his prejudices, right? His prejudice was right out there in the open. He had a perspective. He had a judgment, a feeling of superiority over and against Nazareth. But he didn't try to hide it. See, I think we often try to suppress our prejudices, and I think the primary way we try to do that is by denying and pretending that we have any prejudices, that we have no latent assumptions about people or about groups, no feelings of superiority, and if that's true about you, that's amazing. Let's talk, because I have a lot to learn from you. Because when I honestly look at myself and I look at situations, there are things that come up in me, there are feelings of superiority that I have to address intentionally. I think this whole prejudice problem is what defines our political climate right now, right? That, can you really say that there is no one of any political ilk or persuasion that you have no feelings of superiority, superiority over any of them? Now, and I'm not saying you have to agree with everyone, but prejudice starts to show up when we won't actually even listen to someone. And can we really say there's no one of any socioeconomic status that we don't have a sense of superiority to, or there's no one of any race or of any lifestyle choice or uh, of any creed or belief, no one that you feel superior to, or no one perhaps that even you feel pity toward. I'm not talking about compassion where you're willing to suffer because someone else is suffering. I'm talking about pity where you feel bad for them because really you feel better about you and where you're at. The great thing about Nathaniel is that he's open with his prejudice. And the great thing about Jesus' response and his affirmation is that he invites it to be brought out into the open because when it is brought into the open, Jesus can actually change it. Jesus reveals himself and he changes Nathanael, but if Nathanael was hiding his stuff, I don't think it would have changed because God's not going to force himself on you or on me. See, if you want to shut God out, he's going to most of the time let you do that if you want to shut him out about, uh, from some part of your life, he's going to basically allow that to happen. So if you want to keep God out of your finances, if you want to keep God out of your marriage, out of your career ambitions, out of your relationships, out of your sexuality, out of whatever it is, then if you want to shut him out, he's going to pretty much let you shut him out. It's actually only his grace when he doesn't let us shut him out. But if we open ourselves to him, If we are, if we have no deceit, even about the ugly parts of us, then he will reveal himself and he will begin to work within us, work out his good purposes in our lives. So in Nathanael, there is no deceit, even about his prejudices, about his ugliness. There's no deceit about his questions. He brings his honest and open questions to Jesus. But I think perhaps the most amazing thing that Jesus is saying when he says there's no deceit in Nathanael is that there's no (laughs) self-deception, Because it's so easy to deceive ourselves, isn't it? To convince ourselves that we're good. I'm on the right path. I'm living right. Everything's good. It's easy to justify our choices and our behavior. We can create an echo chamber within our own mind to convince ourselves, or even the people that we gather around us to offer us counsel, just to reinforce how great we already are. You know, the, the proverb that we heard earlier from chapter 9 is both an encouragement and a warning to this tendency. It's an encouragement to us to seek out counsel, correction, even rebuke from other people. But it's also a warning if you're the one that's being sought out, because if they actually want to be corrected, then things are going to be fine. If they don't, it could get ugly really fast, and you've probably experienced that in your life. Somebody asked for your advice, but they didn't really want it do we really want correction? And this is a hard question to answer because from a distance it's easy to say, of course I want correction. Of course I want to be, you know, on a better path than I am now. But when it gets a lot closer, that's a lot more difficult to answer, isn't it? But if we deceive ourselves, man, we know it can get ugly. If we convince ourselves that we're healthy and we're strong and we're great and we ignore the reality of the blood work and what the doctors are saying to us, we know that it could get worse and worse, don't we? And if we deceive ourselves in our relationship with God, it can get ugly as well. We can deceive ourselves that we're better than we are. We can also deceive ourselves that we're worse than we are. Because we can tell ourselves, yeah, I'm good. Nothing to see here, nothing to change. And it can breed within us a hypocrisy, a self-righteousness. But on the other hand, we can also deceive ourselves into believing, I'm a mess, I'm worthless, I have nothing to offer anyone else. That's also another self-deception because it's not true. These are these preconceived notions that we carry about ourselves when we come to Jesus. But the reality is we are all a mess and we are all precious. Nathaniel embraces this radical authenticity, which I think challenges a lot of people if you've been in churches for a long time. Because he's authentic with the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think many have been conditioned at least to believe that in churches, it's not safe to be authentic. That you have to perform. You have to act a certain way, look a certain way, behave a certain way. Really, you have to perform. You have to deceive Everyone around you have to deceive yourself, and really at the heart of it, we're trying to deceive God. And this is part of why we think it is so important to grow in groups, to have a small group around you. Because in groups, we can begin to let the masks down, to take those off. We can really know one another. We can share authentically. Where it can be safe to be a person without deceit Even your prejudices can start to come out in the open. Your preconceived notions can be challenged and addressed because you start to have people in your life that can correct you and rebuke you, encourage you, pray for you, love you. I think this is part of why Jesus grabbed 12 guys so that they could share this kind of life together, an authentic life. And in that authenticity, Jesus says to Nathaniel, man, you believed because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. That was nothing. Nothing. As you continue to walk with me authentically, you're going to see greater things than this. In fact, you are going to see, I'll tell you the truth, you'll see heaven open up. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference back to Genesis, the story of Jacob, who was known as a deceiver, by the way who sleeps one night and God shows him a dream where the heavens open and a ladder drops down and the angels are coming and going and when he wakes up in the morning, he says, man, this place is the gateway to heaven and Jesus is saying, it wasn't about the place, it's about a person. I'm the gateway to heaven. I'm gonna show you things that you'll never see otherwise. Authentically come to me, be with me, live with me and I will show you that I am the way to the Father. I will show you that I am the pathway to a whole new life where the Father's love will come to you. Walk with me in authenticity is what this invitation is. Charles Swindoll tells a story that he heard actually from a guy named Lorne Sani. And Lorne worked for a a college ministry called Navigators. And he worked on the Air Force Academy campus in Colorado Springs. It's an incredible, beautiful place. And, And as you can imagine, it's filled with these officers in training. And so it is also a place of incredible competition. Incredible peer pressure. And Lauren tells this story about a young man who was trying to organize a Bible study, and so he was pushing and inviting and motivating people, trying to get them to come and be a part of this, and through his constant effort over time, it started to get some traction and the group grew. Well, the group decided to acknowledge that he was the leader. And one morning, Lauren was talking with the group about the importance of devotion and time with God and He looks over at the young man and he says hey tell us tell us about your walk tell us what keeps your heart warm and the young man he blinked a few times through tears and he looked around and in the pressure of that moment with all of his peers there he says sir i i don't have any time with god as a matter of fact i'm a fake And he admitted in front of the whole group that he was simply driven by this need to be known and viewed as the leader when in reality there was no authenticity behind it. This young man's hopes and expectations were being shaped by his personal ambitions and his insecurity, not by the Word of God. And he was hiding from himself and from others. He was deceiving. He was grasping at something that seemed to elude him. But in that moment, finally, when he opened up, he acknowledged, I'm fake. When authenticity broke in, that's when things could finally change for him, and that's when things can change for us. In our authenticity as followers of Jesus, even with our prejudices, our ugliness, when we don't go into hiding behind our questions, when we invite others in to correct us, rebuke us, when we come not with our preconceived notions about God and about how life should work when we allow him to shape us and to change us, that's where we'll see the Father. That's where we'll see things that we couldn't imagine otherwise. That's where God will deeply change our lives. You're invited into that kind of authentic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I think it's time, like Nathaniel, to get real. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much We thank you for your pursuit of us. We thank you for for calling Nathaniel, for his example, that it wasn't because he had eradicated prejudice and questions from his life that made him acceptable to come to you, but it was his authenticity and his honesty and that Jesus, you made the way possible. Lord, help us to get real, to get real with ourselves, to stop deceiving, to stop performing, Help us to be courageous in relationship with others, to move into groups where we can be corrected and rebuked, where our preconceived notions could be challenged. Lord, where you can shape us and change us, where we would see things that we couldn't imagine otherwise. Lord, we want to know you deeply and authentically like this. Lead us in Jesus' name, amen.